Welcome to Leading Views. Today's guest is Joss Garman, UK Director of the European Climate Foundation and European Young Leader. Welcome, Joss. Thank you. So we are now in what is being widely called a climate emergency. Let's start there. How bad is it? Um, it's pretty bad. <laughs> um, so the latest scientific projections suggest that we're on track for more than two degrees of warming, maybe three or four degrees of warming. And to give a sense of what that means in in reality, it means you know that, that there's a very high risk of mass extinction of plants and animals. Many people say the sixth mass extinction is underway and we're losing hundreds of species a day already. Um, but it also means much more severe and frequently severe weather events, which could be desertification and droughts, or it could be floods, or it could be more extreme hurricanes and so on. Um, but then what that will mean for people is that you could see the mass displacement of people, so millions of refugees. Um, but you could also see an impact on food supplies, water supplies. You already had an occasion recently in Cape Town, South Africa, where they almost completely ran out of water. Um, and when you look at the projections for some of the more um, the, the worst case scenarios, there really is, you know, whole parts of the world that could become almost uninhabitable to live in. And so the potential impact on the communities that live in those places, the plants and animals that live in those places, the food supplies, the water supplies, and then the knock-on impact of that on business and therefore on the financial system and the stability of the global financial system. You know, Mark Carney has talked about this as being one of the greatest, if not the greatest threat to global financial stability. Because you think about the level of um, disruption that there could be from the impacts of climate change itself, but also from a very, very, very rapid transition away from fossil fuels um, in, in a sort of disorderly last minute way, if we don't do it in a planned, quite orderly, quite strategic way. And you think about the fact that even in the UK where I live, for example, I think uh, something like one in seven pounds that people have in pensions is just in BP like the level of people's financial exposure at a personal level to companies that are so heavily invested in the financial system means that there's a real risk to, you know, potentially people's livelihoods and what they depend on to live. So it's both very personal, but also I think one of the reasons it proves so difficult to deal with is it's, it can feel so overwhelming because it's often talked about in a way that makes it sound like it's going to be things that happen in the future that could be really bad or things that happen to other people in other places. And I think it's only really now that there's starting to be a realisation that this could happen really quickly and that actually it's already beginning to happen. Why has climate change... I mean, you, you briefly mentioned that it, there's the sense of, of it happening in the future, not it happening now. Um, why do you feel like climate change has been so difficult to address? Is it because it feels like it's far away or is it because um, people aren't taking it seriously um, or is it some sort of combination of both? So I think it's yeah it's sort of both chronologically and geographically removed from people so people who live in the most advanced economies that tend to have the highest emissions or the biggest emerging economies that are where the most emissions growth is expected to happen they're just so preoccupied with other things um, so a huge amount of it is distraction, you know, just people's daily lived reality of getting the kids to school on time and putting food on the table and making sure that you have enough time after all of that to see your friends. 
Um, so I think there's a sense in which even though people are anxious about this and they're worried about it and they think it's a big concern, A, it's not immediate. It's something that, that can kind of wait. And also the fact that it doesn't feel personal, it doesn't feel local yet, apart from in some parts of the world where people really are feeling it viscerally, like in the small island states where they're already evacuating people because they're literally islands disappearing underwater. So I think the worry is that it's only when it starts to impact people in a big way that they will like really sit up and wake up and that could translate across politically. Um, but by that point, it could be too late because once you start hitting temperature rise thresholds, it can become very difficult to control. And people talk about irreversible climate change where you go over two degrees and you start to get these feedback loops where it essentially becomes very, very difficult for people to manage how it then pans out. But I think the other thing that's difficult for this generation of politicians um, and business leaders and so on to engage with the climate crisis is it, it, it's so unfamiliar to them that even if they accept intellectually that it's a huge problem, they don't feel comfortable talking about it because they don't really understand the solutions. The solutions don't feel very accessible. So, you know, when we talk about economic problems in politics, people say, oh, we should raise taxes or we should cut taxes or what the impact on inflation is going to be or what the interest rate, you know, it's a whole language that politicians feel very comfortable talking about, which is like, we have big levers and the, it makes the economy go this way or that way. Whereas with climate change, I think it hasn't been made accessible in a way that people understand, okay, these are the things we need to do. This is how we talk about it. It's okay, we can, we can roll out these solutions. And as a consequence, sometimes the debate feels very inaccessible, very chaotic. You know, on the one hand, we're talking about fracking or we're talking about solar panels or we're talking about cutting meat. It feels very unstructured, very chaotic and, and quite uh, alien and inaccessible to most people and the way that they live their lives and what they're worried about. So I think, you know, it falls to climate advocates to really break this down into simple, accessible solutions. Um, because actually, fundamentally, it isn't that complicated. Like we have a global energy system that is built on burning coal, burning oil, burning gas, and we need to stop doing that as quickly as possible. And we have a global agricultural and land use system that revolves around chopping down forests, and we can't do that because they're huge global carbon stores. So not only do we need to protect our forests, but we need to restore our forests and our natural habitats because that's one of the biggest solutions to climate change. And obviously, it's not simple how you do that, but fundamentally, that's what we're talking about. And so that means that climate change is fundamentally an infrastructure challenge. It's about the kind of transport systems we build, the energy systems we build, the heating systems we build, which is totally within the reach of our policymakers to determine. You know, we can build dirty stuff or we can build clean stuff. It ain't that complicated. Um, and, and also it's a capital problem. It's, you know, capital flow at the level of billions of pounds or trillions of pounds will either go into dirty stuff or it will go into clean stuff and it will do one of those things based on what the economic return is going to be and policymakers can influence what the economic return is going to be by you know establishing policies to influence that and so fundamentally like when you break it all down strip away all the rhetoric it's about infrastructure and it's about capital markets 
And to a very small extent, it's also about lifestyle change and people's personal behavior. But that's really only a fraction of the problem. But speaking of these solutions, and I, I honestly have never really heard about it talked about in terms of infrastructure and, and, and capital, and I, 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 I like that it can be broken down so simply. In Europe, right now, we, we had our European elections this year, and we have a new class of commissioners, a new class of members of parliament. If you could paint a path to tackling the climate crisis and, and give them a sort of step-by-step guide of what Europe needs to do to tackle this issue and be at the forefront of it, um, what would it look like? So I think if you look at the global climate footprint as it stands and where it comes from, there are basically big chunks. So there's a chunk which is energy generation. So that's how we power our homes and businesses and how we heat our homes and businesses. Then there's a chunk that is transport, which is primarily road transport, but it's also shipping and aviation. And then there's a chunk which is land use, which is essentially agriculture and forest and peat, peatlands, which are a huge carbon store. Uh, And then finally there's industry, so steel, chemicals, glass, and so on. Those are the main chunks of the global climate footprint. So taking each of those in turn, like we know what the solutions are in the power sector. And if you take the UK, my home country, we've gone from a system where just less than 10 years ago, almost half of all our electricity came from burning coal to a system where none does, almost none. You know, most weeks in Britain now, no coal burning happens. And as a consequence of just that single change, we have the lowest emissions that we've had since the 1850s. Almost 80% of all the emissions cuts in the UK, and we have the fastest rate of emissions cuts of any country in the world, is just that single policy of phasing out coal. If you look at the global energy system, almost half of the global energy system carbon footprint is just burning coal. So fundamentally, like the first thing that the world needs to do is get out of coal. And and yet in Europe, of all places, supposedly the climate leadership center, you have a country like Germany that is still digging up coal, still building new coal-fired power stations in Holland and places. I mean, it's just unbelievable that that is still happening in a context where we know what the solutions are. And actually they're cheaper quite often, they're better, And there are whole new industries that we can establish and that we can export around the world based on those technologies, be that wind or solar or heat pumps or hydrogen, any of these things. So that's the first thing, is the energy system. The second thing is, is, uh, and I should have talked about heating in that as well. So, you know, how we heat our homes and businesses. We're going to have to shift away from using primarily natural gas to using cleaner alternatives. And that's probably the most difficult part of the transition, actually, because... The clean alternatives quite often are quite uh, intrusive to people's lives in terms of fitting them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're going into someone's house and taking out their gas boiler and fitting something else, or if you're going into someone's house and you're making the house more energy efficient so that they don't use so much fossil fuels to heat their house, that can feel quite intrusive. And so there's, it's going to be difficult to do the transition in the heating sector more so than in the electricity sector. But then you take road transport, which now is the single biggest chunk of the climate footprint in the UK. And, you know, we know what the solution is. It's going to be the rapid electrification of road transport. And actually, the auto sector in Europe, at least, is moving incredibly slowly and rolling out these cleaner cars. But we know that policies like California has, where they put a mandate on the auto sector, that a proportion of their sales each year have to be electric, can just 
lead to a very, very rapid uptake and really drive down the cost of those clean vehicles so that the cheapest vehicle that people can buy is a clean electric vehicle that's then running off this green electricity that's being produced in the energy system. And so if we do those two things, then you're, you're already almost you know, two-thirds of the way through a country's energy footprint by the time you've done those, those things. And then you take industry, and industry's tricky because almost certainly you will need to use carbon capture and storage technology, which is not yet being deployed commercially anywhere in the world. There's about 43, I think, pilots of this technology. The idea is that you capture the pollution from the chimney and bury it in stores under the ocean or under the ground. Um, and it's added cost, which is why industry doesn't like it. And it's not yet been commercially deployed. But we're going to have to do that at a huge scale around the world. And so whoever's the first mover in those industries and whoever's doing the first green cement and the first green steel, you know, has the potential to really dominate those industries in the future. But again, I would say this is where Europe could really lead because we're... You know, we have the technological expertise and we have the engineers and the scientists in our universities and stuff to develop these technologies. So once you've done energy and you've done road transport and you've done industry, then you get into land use. Um, and like farming, the farming sector has actually got away relatively lightly in terms of scrutiny in the climate debate. But I think it's really going to come more to the fore because you look at something like the Amazon rainforest crisis in a minute. And it's, it's double pronged because you have the drought that's occurring and the fires, which is partly caused by climate change. But then you also have the fact that fires are being deliberately set by beef farmers so that they can sell cheap beef to Europe. And again, you can see how Europe can impact the debate on what happens on the ground in, in the Amazon through its trade standards, for example, with Brazil, through its diplomatic approach. You know, Europe's still ultimately the biggest trading bloc in the world. The US, if, if there was a Democrat president again, could really like transform the way that we, we think about protecting sites like the Amazon rainforest. Um, similarly, palm oil is one of the biggest drivers of deforestation in Indonesia and Malaysia. And these are like orangutan habitats. So to protect these places that are valuable for nature, but also valuable for carbon, the people who are dependent upon deforestation for their livelihoods need to have alternatives put into place and really, really fast. And that is inevitably going to require international assistance. Um, and so that's why processes like the process that led to the Paris Agreement that we're now going to see come to a really crucial phase over the next year are so important because ultimately it's a question of I will, if you will, let's work together to address these problems. And Paris was historic because it was the first time that literally every single country in the world said, we're going to do something and we're going to do it together. And already you're seeing the impact of that in terms of money is now moving at scale into clean technologies. And the question is whether it will happen quick enough. Even if Europe acts perfectly and every single European country decides that's it, we're cutting coal, we're cutting, you know, we're stopping deforestation, we're going to all go vegan. Um, you know, climate, the climate crisis is a global issue. And um, how, how can we address it? Um, I guess the Paris Accords are one way, but how can we address it when you have a Republican president in the U.S., for example, that doesn't believe in climate change or um, countries like China that have just enormous, I mean, enormous outputs as well? Um, how can we really tackle it? Now, you mentioned trade, which um, which clearly is a, is a, is a very powerful driver. Um, are there any other ways to 
sort of make that Europe yeah, can tackle I mean, this issue. I think it's interesting that even though Trump has sought to do his damnedest to roll back Obama's climate change reforms and make it more difficult to address the climate problem, nevertheless, more coal closed in Trump's first year in office than eight years of Obama. Don't tell him that. And that's just the reality of market forces taking over. Like, there are cleaner, cheaper, better technologies. So why would we use worse, more expensive technologies? Mm-hmm. And But then why are there cleaner, cheaper technologies? Because Europe invested at scale in solar in Germany and offshore wind in the UK and onshore wind in Denmark and the UK and Germany. And in, in Europe, we've brought down the cost of those technologies so that now we're really influencing what happens on the ground in the real economy in places like China which is building an America's worth of electricity over the next 15 years just from renewable and nuclear sources alone. Uh, and we can influence what the development trajectory is of you know, the rising giants like India. Um, because you know, if you're in a rural community in India now, the cheapest form of electricity is solar. So why would you build a new coal-fired power station if you could use clean technology on your house? Um, so Europe and what Europe does with technology and investing in technologies and deploying those technologies can have this hugely outsized impact on what happens in China, India, the US. So that's one route. I think another thing is Europe is essentially, uh, you know, the standard setting center of the world. So take our cars, you know, European car standards are essentially the world's car standards because we have so many auto manufacturers here, but also because ultimately if you want to be able to sell your car into Europe, you have to meet our standards. And so when Europe establishes really tight standards for products, be that cars or be that fridges and so on, it can have a really outsized impact on what the market looks like in the US or in China and other places because ultimately they want to be able to sell to the consumers in Europe. And that's where the link across to trade comes because you take... Uh, a country like Brazil under President Bolsonaro, like clearly Bolsonaro is a obstacle to making progress on climate change. But the business interests in Brazil want to be able to sell their products to Europe. They want to be able to deal with Europe. The military in Brazil depend on their relationships with their allies in the West. So they need to be able to have close diplomatic working relationships. So Europe and other countries that are you know, share our strategic interest in addressing climate change, have a very big influence that they could have if they chose to prioritise this as a political priority. And it's really going to be interesting to see whether or not the citizen movements that we're seeing, like Fridays for the Future and Greta Thunberg's movement, or the Extinction Rebellion movement, or other kinds of climate activism that happen, you know, the church groups the um, diaspora of communities that are impacted by hurricanes that live within Europe. You know, when these communities start to turn out, put pressure on their policymakers, if that then ripples into policymakers in Europe, making this more of a priority, then that can have this outsized global impact. And that's why people need to remember that they do have power over what happens. Like climate can feel so overwhelming, but you take something like the coal phase out of the UK, which then rippled into becoming a coal phase out in dozens of countries in the world. Now you have this powering past coal diplomatic alliance of countries working together to phase out coal. That all began with activists in the UK taking on new coal-fired power stations, winning a political commitment to stop coal. And then that had this outside ripple effect around the world. 
So it's quite encouraging to see in the recent European elections this kind of green wave, as it was described, and the impact that's already having on the new commission in terms of they're saying, you know, we need to have at least halved Europe's emissions by 2030. We need to start thinking about putting taxes on products that come from China that have been produced in a particularly polluting way. You're already starting to see the impact that citizens in Europe can have on the global climate debate, but that needs to massively ramp up if we're going to get to climate safety. I think that's interesting because we, without a doubt, citizens' movements are, are, are behind a lot of the movement that we're seeing in politics. At the same time, there are consumer, sort of consumer movements to change our behavior. And some people say that this is sort of more of a feel-good thing because in the grand scheme of solving the climate crisis, not using straws is not going to cut it. Do you feel like there is an impact sort of beyond the feel good and just the getting used to not overusing products that we don't need? Or does it actually have a measurable impact on climate change? It can, of course, have a measurable impact if it's done at scale, if people do it en masse. And also, I think, you know, I have a lot of respect for people who just make a personal choice that they don't want to be part of the problem. Right. Um, you know, I forget who said it, but it's like if you walk down the street and you see a piece of litter, you pick it up. So in the same way, like if you know that you're contributing to a problem and you know that by making some small changes, you personally cannot be contributing to the problem anymore. That's a powerful thing that then has a ripple effect on other people who also start doing that. So I think there is a potential for consumer movements to be really powerful. And it's also where the role of kind of culture and the arts comes into this, because obviously the, you know, the way that Hollywood shapes public perceptions or global news superpowers, be that the BBC or the Economist or the Financial Times or the new kind of titans of broadcast, which are the new online platforms, um, like Viral Thread and others, like the, the way that they present the climate issue and the way that that ripples onto consumer behavior and citizen behavior could be really outsized. And so I think it goes to how climate kind of both touches almost everything in terms of, you know, what we eat, how we power ourselves, how we get ourselves around, where our money sits in the financial system, all the way through to how we think about ourselves and the kinds of people we want to be and the kinds of communities we want to live in. Um, and so it's quite existential in terms of the questions that it raises as a problem. And that's, I mean, at a personal level, one of the things that makes it such an interesting problem to work on every day is it's almost unprecedented in scale and severity we perhaps are the last generation that can do something serious and meaningful about it. And so getting to think about you know, how this intersects with culture, how it intersects with finance, how it intersects with um, farming or energy systems. I mean, there's, there's a role for literally everyone in the climate effort. And it's a question of professional people and experts in all these different fields, architects, how they design buildings artists, how they integrate this into their art and so on, to think about what can I do to help solve the problem. Well, that leaves me feeling quite hopeful, actually. Um, Joss, thank you so much for joining. Um, I really appreciated this. And I, I'm, I'm really hopeful that in Europe, at least with the new mandate, we'll, we'll start seeing some changes. Great. Thanks very much. <laughs> All right. for listening to Friends of Europe's Leading Views podcast. Tell us what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment, a like, or a rating for us. Have a lovely day. Bye.